Okay, so today what I want to talk about is the housing market. And uh, I'll talk about the U.S. housing market, but also the Canadian housing market, because the Canadian housing market is the one that's been you know, going through this huge, huge bull market lately. And, uh, you know, I could start off with the U.S. market. And now the U.S. housing prices uh, after 2008 crashed pretty hard. Now, they didn't completely get clobbered because the Fed was buying up so many of these uh, mortgage-backed securities that uh, it, still uh, it still kept housing prices at a reasonable level. But they were still quite, uh, you know, reasonably low. Uh, they weren't nearly as high as, well, they still aren't today, nearly as highly valued as, let's say, U.S. stocks are or U.S. bonds are. And so the housing market in the United States, I mean, it's been growing a lot this year. It's had a lot of growth this year, but it's still one of the relatively uh, less uh, overvalued sectors, I guess. And it's, it's not one of those super expensive things, but in Canada, and that's what I want to talk about right now, in Canada, that's a completely different story. Um, if you look at the growth, let's say the population growth in Canada, it's about 1.4% a year. And you need a population growth of two for your population to not be decreasing. And so Canada's population is not really increasing. Now, at the same time, the housing prices are, are, are flying. They're going basically to the moon. And uh, over the last couple of years, the housing prices in Canada have went up around 10%. Now, 10% is, I mean, if for stocks, it's not uh, incredibly high. It's a pretty reasonable target. But houses aren't stocks. Houses are not usually an income-producing asset. Now, unless if you're renting it out for commercial or, or residential real estate, uh, you're not going to be making any cash flow on it. You're not going to be making any income off of your house. In fact, you're going to be losing money, right? You're going to have to be paying all these uh, taxes on your, on your property. And you're going to have to be paying all these additional fees uh, that come with repairing your house and, and what, whatever like that. So a house is actually just a negative cash flow producing asset. And uh, that's why if you read the book, um, I think it's, it's Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And, uh, you know, that's like one of the, one of the classics. But, he, you know, the, the author, Robert Kiyosaki, says that um, your house is not an asset. It's a liability. Now, I don't agree with that statement. I don't think it makes any sense, but it's not a productive asset. It's not a you know, cash flow producing asset. And so you know, I kind of get where he's coming from, but he's, I don't think he's wording it very well. And so a growth in house, 
house prices at 10% a year is just crazy. It's, it's not anything uh, reasonable, especially when you have a population growth um, of 1.4%. You have a GDP growth that's not very high. And so you shouldn't be getting all these you know, crazy housing prices. And uh, unlike the United States and Canada, uh, during the U.S. housing boom uh, that ended in 2008, you didn't really uh, get that much of a housing boom in Canada. The, the Canadian stock market did really well, but the Canadian houses didn't do that well. I mean, they went up, but not anything close to uh, how the U.S. houses went up. And that's kind of the reverse situation with the United States and Canada today. Canadian house today's are flying up um, at un- incredibly unreasonable levels. Let's say you go to Toronto and you, you buy one of these little houses here. Um, just any, any one of these houses. Uh, it's just a small little house, even a, an apartment. It's probably going to cost you $700,000, a million you know, a small house, a million, two million, you know, they're not big places, but they cost an incredible amount. And, and of course, nowadays, it's hard to buy a new house. Um, you're going to be having, you're going to have to be taking up such a large mortgage. That's kind of the situation you have in China except the Chinese housing bubble just (laughs) apparently never pops. Um, And it probably will someday, uh, even with government policies trying to prevent that. But you don't know what's going to happen and when it's going to happen. But you, you eventually reach a point where nobody can afford to buy a house. And what ends up happening is you have to live in the houses of uh, your parents and then they pass down their houses, and then you pass down your house to your children, and then you sell their house to maybe buy a new house and then to change up your houses. And so you're not actually buying new houses. You have the same amount of homes, except you're kind of just moving from one home to another. And um, you know, the thing with China is they're getting some foreigners going in there and buying their houses. And of course, Everybody just thinks that house that the housing prices are going to keep on going up, and so nobody bothers to sell. And in Canada, you kind of have the same thing, especially with such low interest rates. Nowadays, everybody's going to the you know banks, taking out taking on a mortgage, getting a new house. Houses are doing well, and so they're going to go back and buy more houses, and. I mean, are there that many people renting these houses? I don't know. Because if you look at the population growth in Canada, it doesn't seem like there's that big of an increase in population. And it's not like nowadays, everybody wants to buy more houses because the GDP growth is not, you know, it's not that substantial either. And so what we're seeing in Canadian housing, it 
really resembles the housing uh, boom that we've had in the United States in 2008. Now, even uh, a, a big Canadian bank, CIBC, I think it was, uh, came out and criticized the Bank of Canada for blowing this huge housing bubble and keeping by keeping interest rates so low. And usually you don't see that because, you know, these guys are all kind of like teammates and they're all kind of, they're basically kind of just um, aligned with each other and, and, and make decisions together. It's kind of like this, but I, I mean, I guess, I guess the banks do kind of benefit from having higher interest rates because they get to make loans at a higher rate. And so if banks are just going to make mortgage loans at 3%, which is kind of the rate now, if they're going to keep on doing that, 30-year mortgages at, at 3%, they're not going to be making much money, especially when the rate of inflation is around 2%. And so, of course, the banks probably want higher uh, interest rates. And I guess that would be a fair reason to you know, criticize the, the Central Bank of Canada here. But, I mean, nonetheless... They're not wrong. I mean, if if you look at the just unreasonable growth in the prices of houses to the point where nobody can afford them, and you look at where interest rates are, and you look at where interest rates are going, and so you know the Bank of Canada says that the interest rates will not be raised in uh, until like 2023. I mean, that's two years from now. And that's two years of maybe uh, even more housing price growth. And so now even less people are going to be able to afford to buy houses. Um, and house, you know, house prices might keep on going up or, you know, they might come crashing down before 2023. Although, I mean, in such an uh, such a low interest rate environment, you don't really know what's going to happen. And housing prices could keep on going up. Because, uh, you know, but, but when, once, the, once the rates come up, well, even less people are going to be able to afford to buy the houses. And so you have this really big problem. And the question is, well, what happens when the price of houses come down? What happens when the uh, long-term interest rates start to go up? And the, you know, if you look at the yield on treasuries, uh, especially the long-term treasuries, the 10 years, the 30 years, those are big factors in determining the uh, rates in the uh, mortgages because they're, they're pretty good competitors of each other, I guess you could say. And so what you end up having is really low long-term interest rates, but now they're starting to rise. And you know what happens when they go even higher? Well, maybe the central banks are going to come back and, and start buying long-term treasuries again. They might do their yield curve control, which is basically they set up a, a rate they want uh, the treasuries to be at, 
and they'll buy however many treasuries they, they need to buy in order to get the treasury down to whatever rate they want it to be. And so let's say I want the yield on the 10-year to be 1%. Well, I might buy uh, you know, a billion or 10 billion or 100 billion or whatever number worth of 10-year treasuries, and I'll buy so many of them that they, you know, the rates on the treasuries go to 1%. And if I want to do QT, uh, which is tightening and, and, and uh, well, I guess you would still call it yield curve control, and you want the yields to go up, well, then you'll just start selling all these treasuries and you'll have so many, you know, so many treasuries that the yields will start to rise. And, you know, if, if we have that, all the way until 2023, we, you know, we could probably delay a housing uh, bust, but it eventually it's going to come down regardless. You know, eventually it's going to happen. And the thing with housing is that the housing market doesn't come down instantly. It's not like the, the stock market in March that just comes <laughs> crashing down in one or two months. The housing market is very different, and the housing market uh, it has a very slow uh, fall that lasts over quite a long period of time. And so if you look at Japan, when they had their huge housing bust, it was a long, very, very long period of uh, stagnation. And I mean, I don't know what we're going to get with houses um, they're definitely overvalued today. And I, I mean, I could see them going higher in the short term. But you also have a, a few places in Canada where the housing prices are not uh, incredibly high. For example, I, I looked at Alberta, and I, I don't know if uh, everybody knows where Alberta is, but uh, it, it's a city that. It, uh, has a lot of oil. Um, back in uh, 2011, 2012, everybody was going to Alberta because Alberta had all the oil and everybody wanted the oil. And so everybody went to Alberta, bought houses, and you know some people made a lot of money and, and others who got in late lost a ton of money. And the prices of the houses in Alberta was higher than Toronto, was higher than Vancouver. Um, it was probably as high as New York, like Manhattan. You know, the, the housing prices were ridiculous back then. And people just wanted to go in and get oil. And so what you had was a, a very, I guess, quick housing boom fueled by commodities. And then once 2014 came, the price of oil started to collapse. The price of housing started to collapse as well. And you haven't had a uh, really uh, good increase in the price of Alberta homes ever since. Um, and so now Alberta homes are actually not uh, quite... Well, they're not, they're not, I wouldn't say they're 
uh, overvalued, especially relative to Canadian homes. The, the price of the homes in Alberta sits kind of near to the American home uh, price range. And I'm not talking about American homes in, in California, you know, in, in Hollywood or in, in, in Manhattan. You know, I'm talking about just a normal state with, um, with, with you know, houses that are, are, are quite normal. Like, you know, Florida, for example, uh, the house prices there are not, they're not unreasonable at all. Uh, they're very reasonable. And, you know, it's a, it's a pretty nice city. Um, so American homes are not uh, overvalued compared to Canadian homes. And Alberta, the price of Alberta homes uh, seems kind of similar to the price of American homes. And you have uh, a potential benefit for Alberta if the price of oil starts climbing up again. Now, the price of oil, what we've had is the price of oil in uh, March just collapse. You know, sometime in the, in the recession last year, the price of oil dropped to negative like $37 a barrel. And that must be terrible for Alberta homes because the economy in Alberta heavily relies on oil. And so, I mean, at that time, it probably dropped. Now, again, real estate is not too volatile. So it's not uh, like, a, like a quick, sharp drop. But, you know, you probably had some type of drop in it, the price of oil now is, uh, I think, just under 60. And so right now, 60 is a pretty uh, reasonable price for oil. It's not, it's not high at all. And I think oil could go even higher. I think uh, oil could easily go even higher. Now, I don't know about the long-term prospects of oil, like, you know, 50 years from now, I don't know if we're still going to use it. Maybe we're going to have electric vehicles and, and you know, electric planes. Who knows? And oil might not have such a high demand anymore. Uh, now, that might not mean the price would go down because, you know, nobody's going to mine oil for a negative profit. So the, the, the price of actual oil might not go down, but the overall market for oil is going to crash. Um, and you're going to have much less oil companies in business. And a lot of the oil companies are going to go bust if, if oil is no longer needed in, in, let's say, 50, 30 years. But uh, I, I don't think the price of a barrel of oil is going to change too much just because no one's going to mine oil anymore if your, your, your cost of mining a barrel of oil is higher than the price of oil. And, you know, I was looking at the uranium sector, and that's kind of what you have right now. You have um, the price of uranium, and you have the cost and the cash cost. 
not counting like the, you know, the factory built, you know, the building, the, the plants and, and uh, the prior costs. I'm talking about the cash cost of, of mining uh, a pound of uranium. And that cost is actually higher than the price. And so you have this kind of situation where you're going to have a lot of companies start to shut down. And when you have these companies shut down, well, the price is of the uh, metal that they're mining is going to go up. And then they'll go back in business once the price goes up, as long as there is a need for, the, for whatever they're mining. And for oil, um, if, if, you know, if you're expecting inflation, oil does well, energy does well. If you are expecting uh, you know, economic growth, if you think we're entering the 1920s, um, I, I don't know why you think that. But if you think that, then energy usually does quite well. And so... Alberta, I think, you know, the houses there have uh, quite a bit of space to go, uh, at least in the in the longer term, maybe five, 10 years, because the Canadian housing market in general is overvalued. And a lot of people I know are like, yo, we got to go into the Canadian housing market, We got to buy up more homes, houses are doing so well, and so we got to buy more. I don't think it's a good idea. I think um, it's kind of the same with GameStop. And, uh, you know, talking about GameStop, talking about all these bubbles, I, I read an article today and it was about the, the guy who bought $69 million worth of NFTs. Now, I don't know why he paid $69 million for it. I, I don't know if it's a meme or something. That guy's probably really wealthy because um, I'm pretty sure the price of NFTs in general have gone down by like 70% or something. And that's just in less than a month. I mean, that's, you know, in a few weeks period. Uh, so, and I, I don't think they're going back up again. And the, the, the best part about it is that, um, the guy who bought NFTs basically said that uh, crypto, investing in crypto or investing in Bitcoin or something like that is as crazy as buying NFTs. Now, I don't know why he's, he wasted $69 million on an F NFT. I mean, he could have just gave it to me. I mean, I, I, would, I would love having $69 million. Or he could have even gave half of it to me. I mean, I'd be very happy anyways. But, you know, he, he, he spent it on NFT and I, I don't know if he regrets it or not, but I, I, I you know, I, I guess he realized that it was a, a pretty stupid decision. And, um, you know, maybe he purposely made that choice. I, I don't know. But that's just a warning to all of these, you know, crypto investors, I guess, that um, if NFT doesn't work, and all these people are saying, you know, NFTs are going to be the next big thing. NFTs are going to the moon. NFTs you know, are here to stay forever. And maybe they are here to stay forever. I don't know. Um, but they may not be worth 
much money in next five years, you know, maybe they're here to stay, but if they're trading for pennies, if a, you know, if what you bought for 69 million is now worth $10, um, I mean, does it really matter if it's here to stay? It's as good as if it's gone. And for, for stuff like Bitcoin, for cryptocurrencies, um, that might be a problem that you're going to have to face as well, especially once the bubble, the bubble in the economy starts to pop. And so you might have to watch out if you're invested in Bitcoin and Ethereum and, and, and Dogecoin. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know about Do- I mean, I don't know who, who are the people who are buying Dogecoin. I think it's probably like the Elon Musk followers. Um, but I really have no idea. I don't know if they want to buy Dogecoin to, to get rich or just to make a statement or to you know, try, try to be funny. I don't know. But it's not a great place to store your, val- uh, store your money for sure. And so the uh, point of this video I think you should kind of stay away from Canadian houses and also kind of stay away from uh, crypto. And uh, I, I would argue that it's better to stay away from crypto than it is to stay away from Canadian homes. It's more important to stay away from crypto than Canadian homes, although staying away from both would make a lot of sense Anyways, 